everybody. Welcome into another edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Wintrust, proud legacy partner of the Chicago Cubs, an exclusive home of Cubs Checking. Open online today at Wintrust.com slash Cubs Weekly. Tony and Draggy here joined by Andy Martinez and Lance Brozdowski. And guys, we just saw a move from the Cubs perspective, adding to the bullpen. They had traded for Yency Almonte earlier in the year with the Dodgers trade uh, that also brought Michael Bush, more of a headliner in that deal. But Hector Neris coming over from the Ash, he was previously in the Astros and the Phillies. Lance, I'll start with you. Just what did you think overall of this move and how he fits in the Cubs bullpen? I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Amante's the guy who's probably more your righty matchup guy with the big sweeper. And then Neris comes in with a splitter, pretty platoon neutral pitch, offering that I think will obviously help versus the left-handed hitters. He's a guy that I think since 2015 has actually the most innings among relievers, up, up around 500, next to some names like Rysel Glacius, Ryan Presley, others that have, and Kenley Jansen, other guys have been in the league for a while and have had a lot of high leverage innings. He's pitched 60 innings or so, I think, over the last four or five years, excluding 2020. You know, the K rate's always been good. It, it's, it feels like a very low variant signing to me. And I also like, like, the dollar figure they got him at. I, I was talking with Bruce and JD the other day about whether getting him sub 10 million is a byproduct, perhaps, of some of the fastball velocity drop on him. Um, but you saw David Robertson, who's also old, get like 11 million. So to get Neris at you know a, a solid price under 10 million, especially you know I think there's some room to maybe drop the fastball usage and bring up some splitter, especially with the velo decrease in the fastball. Like it feels like a really safe signing, three six three seven ERA with leverage innings. I, I like it a lot. It's it's interesting because I think if you would have said at the beginning of the offseason the Cubs are going to sign a reliever to a nine million dollar AAV contract, I think most of us would have yeah. said that's probably not happening. Just that's not how Jed Hoyer operates. It's not how the Cubs operate. But we've seen how the market moves. David Robertson, the prime example, um, at eleven million or rough, roughly right yeah, around there. Four years older than there is. Right. Yeah. There's about I believe it was eight guys who have signed for at least eight million or over AAV. Some of the names that included there are like Joe Kelly, like mm-hmm. guys that I think don't necessarily have the track record of Naris. And I know the underlying metrics aren't favorable to Naris just because of the the velo d- drop. The expected ERA was a lot higher than Robertson's. Like there's little things like that that I think play into that. But at the end of the day, he was the most trusted reliever behind Presley on the Astros bullpen, which is saying something because that team has won World Series. That team has been there every single year in the in the ALCS. He was relied upon in five of the seven games of the ALCS. Like he was a trusted guy that the Astros turned to. And I think one of the one of the things that got overlooked in the Cubs bullpen in 2023 was the fact that they didn't necessarily have like that veteran guy that some of these younger relievers could turn to. As great as Ryan Tapera and Michael Givens and David Robinson and Craig Kimbrell, all these guys, as great as they were, one of the things that they provided will, won't ever appear like on fan graphs or baseball reference. It's just the value that they had yeah. to the young relievers. And I, I think back to when Ethan Roberts made his debut, and it's it's a whirlwind day. And I remember Michael Givens coming up to him in the locker room afterwards and, and hugging him and like saying some words to him. And just that, that yeah. veteran presence, I think, was lacking last year in the bullpen. Michael Fulmer provided that a little bit, but he had only been a reliever for two seasons right. before then. So he wasn't necessarily – he was still like a young reliever person in a lot of ways. Brad Boxberger was hurt for most of the season. Like, they didn't have that veteran guy who could come up to these young guys. Like, when a Daniel Palencia comes up and it's like, what do I do in a major league bullpen? It's, well, you have that, right? Like, you have that, uh, that veteran presence who's going to be able to say, hey – start doing this, start doing this. Like, I think that is just so invaluable to have for, for the 
for the Cubs in the bullpen, and, and they're getting that with Nares. Yeah, and I think, too, it, that's a good point, Andy, that, like, if you would have looked at – if you flash back to the beginning of the offseason, it would have been a move that maybe seemed – like a low likelihood just because historically Jed and even before when Theo was here, like they just don't pay top dollar for a lot of relievers. Kimbrell was the last guy that they really did. They try to find these guys on values. Well, actually the way this offseason has played out, Naris is a value. And I like the point that both of you guys have made on that is like getting him at about $9 million. If he appears in 60 games, then he has the player option to pick up for 2025. I think that's like a really good value too, or it could potentially be a really good value if he stays healthy. If the Boxberger thing that happened last year doesn't happen to him, he's out there, he posts. And yeah, the, the veteran guy, high leverage innings, like coming off a really good season, even if the velocity dipped and the Ks dipped a bit. But Lance, you, you mentioned one thing just with the splitter. I think, I mean, that's a that's one of the areas that Naris is probably kind of underlying is he's really, really good against lefties. The yeah. last two years, he's been better against lefties and righties. This Cubs team doesn't have a lefty to point to right now that Surefire will make the bull, opening day bullpen. But now between Leiter and Naris, they have two guys with their splitters who can kind of combat lefties as right-handed pitchers. And I think that's a really interesting component of building the bullpen here. I agree, yeah. Merriweather's slider, too, works pretty well versus left-handed hitters. Generally, like, pitches that don't have a lot of movement in one direction or the other are pretty platoon neutral. That's why, like, cutters and splitters work really well versus open-handedness. I also think that there's room for Naris to throw the splitter to righties as well. But I, I that's kind of the hack you can get into to not needing to maybe rely on, like, a Luke Little in those leverage spots if you get three lefties in a row or two or three lefties coming up in the eighth inning or along those lines. You know, maybe Luke Little throughout the course of the season can get to that point, but I think that you could rely on Leiter or any of these guys with more of that platoon neutral approach in those leverage spots against lefties and not feel like you're giving away the advantage to the, uh, the offense. Uh, one thing that I think, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, that I think is super interesting with this signing too is it, it, it creates depth that the Cubs didn't have last yeah. season in leverage yeah, situations. Like the, the ultimate hope, and, and Jed Hoyer had, had like, he did not hide this in any means. Like, the ultimate hope is that the bullpen one day is just internal guys, right? Like, Daniel Palencia comes yeah. up, or this prospect comes up, or this guy comes up, and they're, they're factors in the bullpen. But you can't just call up a prospect and say, hey, like, you're going to get a save in your major league debut in the one-run game in September playoff. Like, that just, you don't, that's just not how it operates with bullpen arms. When you add a Hector Neris, and you have Albert Alzali, and you have Mark Leiter Jr., and you have Julian Merriweather, and now you have Yancy Almonte, and you have Jose Quas, you have all these options that, like, they provide cover, right? So you don't have to rely on Adbert Azalei three days in a row like it happened at points of the season. You don't have to rely on Mark Leiter four times in five days. like Which led you, to, I think, was a big factor right. that led to the collapse. On right. The stretch, yeah. In September, you're you're relying on three guys, and halfway through September, two of those guys are down. You only are relying on Merriweather because you didn't have the opportunities to be able to create or you didn't have the depth to be able to create opportunities for Palencia and Little and some of these other guys to develop into these roles. Having that depth, I think, is crucial where you can have Daniel Palencia maybe either start in the minor leagues or have that option where he's pitching low-leverage situations in the sixth inning, working his way up, which is kind of what Julian Merriweather did last season, right? He was starting off in really low-leverage situations. He was doing well in those, and he developed into a trusted arm at the end of the season. Yeah, yeah and I think this kind of, for me, this was a move the Cubs had to do. Going into this yeah. offseason, I was like, they right. have to get a veteran guy in the bullpen that can pitch high-leverage innings, pitch in the back end. Whether it ends up playing out that way or not, I guess we'll see. I mean, we thought last year maybe Boxberger was a much smaller deal. It was only about a third of the price or whatever, a third of the value of, of this Naris deal. 
But yeah, I think it was something they had to do for sure. Because going back to what you were saying, Andy, is like Merriweather, that was the first year. He's in his 30s. But that was the first year that he ever went from, you know, wire to wire pitching as a reliever. Albert Alzale, same thing. Mark Leiter Jr., same thing. Like these guys, even though there was some injuries for Leiter and Adbert, like, they, there's no guarantee that they're all going to be healthy, fully healthy. And there's such volatility in relievers that you can't guarantee that all of these converted starters are going to have the same level of success. And you have a guy who could step into the ninth inning if Adbert struggles at all. You have a guy who obviously could set up, could pitch against righties, pitch against lefties. The more I like look at it and have thought about it since they signed Naris, not only was it a move that I felt like they had to do, but it seems like it was almost like this layup kind of perfect fit. And I do think the value is pretty good too. It's, it's not much risk at all. I mean, $9 million when they're not as of right now up against the luxury tax, like all of these things, I just feel like it makes a lot of sense given the way this market has played out. Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree with you. I think, I think piecing together the bullpen in this way to give council options is also something attractive thinking about what the Brews have done for each of the last couple of years in terms of bringing up guys and also supplementing it. You know, they, they went to like Abner or Rebay out of nowhere last year. He was nasty. Yeah, Trizlecki yeah. was really good at the beginning of the year. Having options like that, especially thinking about some of these depth signings that I don't think we're going to get into, but they signed a guy from Drivelines Pro Day and a lefty, Richard Lovelady, who was with the A's. They signed some great of these name, peripheral. Great name, by the way. Uh, great, yeah. Yeah. Great uh, some <laughs> peripheral pieces name. as well. Um, I, I think those guys matter down the road. You know, you get into the situations they ran into last year, late in the year where, you know, everyone was taxed, as you were just saying. Like, the ability to have maybe some experience you could also tweak and play around with the mix of and turn them into, like, bridge guys helps a lot. So I think, I wonder if this was honestly an initiative that Council had. Like, I, I want more bullpen depth. We can't do what we had last year where you have three guys, and if one of those guys goes down, you got to basically pull Palencia up into the seventh inning. Like, I think eventually Palencia will get into the seventh, eighth, and ninth. But, like, out the gate, I, I don't think, as Andy said, like, that's not the best way probably to introduce a guy into leverage situations as a 22-year-old in yeah. Valencia. So, yeah, I imagine this was a push for council, uh, on from council side as well. So For sure. And, and like, like I know fans are probably sitting here listening and saying, like, well, Palencia start, like, he made his debut in the 10th inning. But, like, if the Cubs had their way, that would not yeah, have happened. That was necessity only, yeah. Right, that was, yeah. I believe that was their last bullpen arm. And they, yep. it was like, we're either going to a starter or we're, like, it had to go to Palencia. Like, that was the situation. So... Yes, Palencia made his debut in the tenth inning in a crucial game against the the Brewers on July fourth, but that was out of necessity. That's not how they want to bring up some of these young arms and for major league debuts. For sure, and I think going back to the depth thing that you were just talking about, Lance is C.J. Edwards. Carl Edwards Jr. is back, a member of the 2016 team, uh, signed a minor league deal. You know, per reports out there, but like I think it's one of those. Andy, you and I were talking before the podcast. Uh, obviously, a lot of guys come in, sign minor league deals. To me, I feel like Edwards has a strong chance of making the opening day bullpen or at least having a really strong spring or being in a strong position in spring to make the bullpen. And I think a lot of these deals are out there, that minor league moves, that's almost kind of more of a handshake agreement. Like, hey, you know, we're, we'll have you out there. I think Jesse Chavez two years ago for the Cubs bullpen was that same way. You know, we've seen that Even just... Mark Leiter Jr. maybe last year. That's true. Yeah, I keep forgetting that Leiter was a, was a minor league signing last year. But... For Edwards to kind of come back, I, I do feel like, to, to borrow a phrase you use a lot, Andy, is it provides cover, but it's it's just like, it's more depth. It's a guy who's only 32, had kind of turned his career around in Washington, but it's an interesting move to, to bring him back, and maybe if he doesn't make the open bullpen, or if he's in the minor leagues right away, whatever it is, it just seems to me that there's another option that Council has at his disposal, I think. I agree, and I was actually surprised looking at some of his stats last two seasons with the Nationals. He was like a sub-four ERA reliever each of those years, and like, 
more than material innings. He, yeah. he pitched a decent amount. And it seems like he's had this late career resurgence on the backs of throwing his changeup more. He threw it 10% of the time in the 2022 and then around almost 30% of the time in 2023. That kind of came out of nowhere. Like, he threw it really early in his career and then didn't throw it for like four or five years. So there's clearly some tinkering going on there to potentially help him a little more versus lefties. And I think that's a, a reason why he was an effective reliever. I imagine the Cubs saw that and maybe they play around with the mix a little more. I think they obviously like kind of know what he throws. He's, yeah. he's a guy who kind of has everything moving one direction uh, in terms of like a little cut fastball and then the slider off it. So perhaps the changeup really opens up kind of maybe, the, again, the usage profile of how he works versus lefties and righties. So I, I like the tweaks he made. He's another guy that we're talking about. Like maybe he ends up being more in that lighter territory where he comes up and pitches more leverage innings than you, we, we maybe expect him to right now. It's it's two things come up to my, to mind with the, the signing. I think the one thing is like when we talk about volatility about bullpens, he's a prime example, right? In in twenty I believe it was twenty eighteen, he was two six zero ERA, like really good reliever. Like thought thought it seemed like you had the closer of the future, and then eight eight year ERA the next season dealt with injuries, really bounced around in his career. Had issues. It was it was. Seattle, Atlanta, kind of all over the place. He was inactive too for the, the playoffs down the stretch, right? Like that year, so like that was that was surprising that he was a, a surprising non-inclusion, I guess, on the playoff roster. Right. So yeah. You, like you, you, right to the volatility, right? You yeah. think you have a reliever? You think you have this option? You might. You think you might have Mark Leiter Jr., Julian Merriweather, Adbert Alzlag, but you don't know what's going to happen next year in, in in the bullpen. And then he comes around and turns it around. I I thought he would have gotten a major league deal, uh, just right out of just based off of the last two seasons, whether it was like with a lower end team that maybe was looking for help that's maybe rebuilding or whatever, to get a minor league deal, I think I'm right there with you. I think it seems like it's one of those where it's like, mm-hmm. it's a minor league deal, but barring an injury, barring something catastrophic, like you're going to be on the on the opening day bullpen. And I think it creates another option, again, back to the whole original point of like depth and, and providing some relief to some of these young relievers. All right, so let's take all of this into account then. You know, you have Neris, you have Almonte in the bullpen, you have Edwards and some of these other bullpen or depth pieces, ancillary pieces, and minor league deals. Imanaga, obviously, in the rotation. Michael Bush is really the only position player out there that's new. How do you guys feel about this Cubs offseason? We'll, we'll get into Bellinger talking just a bit after this, but Lance, I'll start with you. Like, what do you make of this Cubs offseason so far, and how much better do you think this team, not necessarily better, because I know obviously losing Bellinger is big, but how much do you think they've kind of improved their roster from the start of the offseason, at least, with some of these moves? Yeah, I think they've done a good job, and they've done a good job, especially from like a cost-controlled nature, especially on the contract they got Imanaga on with the given upside that he has, especially looking at how aggressive some projection systems have been on him. And heavy reliance, obviously, on overseas stats, but I, his variance, I think, is huge, and there's a real potential there that he ends up potentially producing, you know, even if he produces, like, 75% of what Kodai Senga did, like, that is a smash contract sure, in terms right, of yeah. the potential of it, it could return. So I think that's a key piece of this offseason. Without that, I, I would say it's it's been a relatively weak offseason, I think, just because there hasn't been, like, an impact move made, but I really think the, adding the variance of a guy like Imanaga helps out a lot, and... Yeah, there's obviously a huge question mark. I think that they obviously need one more bat here. Like, yeah. Is it Chapman? Is it Bellinger? Is it both? Like, what happens in that sphere going forward? I'm, I'm pretty interested to see. Um, but we were just looking before, like, some of the projections on win totals. Like, the Brewers and the markets are just under 80 wins. The Cubs are right at 84, 84 and a half alongside the Cardinals. And I wonder how much that's baking in the addition of another bat, you know? Or if they add Bellinger, does that jump up to, say, like, 85 and a half? But... That's right now. They're right atop that division. The division seems very kind of clustered. There's not. It's not like the NL West where it's the the division between say the Dodgers and the Rockies is massive. It's like this division is very tight, and I think that there's a potential for them to kind of differentiate 
um, from the win total perspective that could really help them out. And it comes down to another bat. Yeah, it's really interesting because they won 83 games last year. And just like looking at it on paper, and we know games aren't played on paper, but if you looked at it on paper, are they one win better already? I don't know, and I don't yeah, think so. I, I, I would probably lean towards no. I agree. But that I'm with you. Like, is it taking into account that like they're, the books are probably projecting that they're going to sign Bellinger or Chapman? Like, then, yeah, for sure that adds those wins. The bullpen already is better, and I think that was such a key part. Part of the – we've talked about it. Like, the, the big issue in September was there was really no one that David Ross could turn to in, in leverage situations at the end of the year. It was just Julian Merriweather. You've already improved that in and of itself. Does that account for one or two wins already? Like, potentially, but then that doesn't include Bellinger where you're probably losing a few more wins. So, like, maybe you're close to net neutral or maybe a little bit below. It's really interesting where they are. They've improved their bullpen, but has the team overall improved? I, I don't think so yet. Yeah, I like I like the pitching picture, which is hard yes. to say, like, five times faster or anything <laughs> like that. But yes. I just like the way that this has come together that – Losing Stroman, I don't think is as big of a loss given the way that he was hurt and ineffective the second half of the season. But, you know, Imanaga, as you mentioned, lands a lot of variants. Maybe that does work out. I think there's there's definitely a reason for optimism there. I think the Cubs certainly have a lot. Seems like a really smart guy who at least will do everything he can to, like, get the most out of his talent and make the adjust necessary adjustments here. But then, yeah, I mean, Drew Smiley right now, still under contract, about $10.5 million, I think is, is what it is, um, after some escalators in there. Is he going to be in the rotation? Is he going to be a reliever? We saw him be effective as a reliever. Matt Moore just signed a deal for $9 million as a reliever only as a lefty. Smiley's not making much more than that. Like, the Cubs just kind of put these pieces together. Then you add some of the younger guys. The Jordan Wicks, who came up and, and made his debut. Ben Brown, who I know, Lance, has been a favorite of yours for a while. Cade Horton coming up. Like, some of these guys, you just add some of these pieces in and move them around. Hayden Wisniewski, Keegan Thompson, we don't even know where those two are going to fit, or even Javier Assad. I just like the overall pitching picture that the Cubs have put together, and I think that will help them mixed with their defense. And they they have a little bit more, maybe not more depth, but I like their depth overall offensively. They're missing the impact bat. But, yeah, just overall, I think this has been a very good offseason for them that, like, you know, Jed's been quiet, kind of laying in the weeds a little bit. And it's as I kind of look up, I'm just like, yeah, you know what? I, I like a lot of these moves, and I like more, I think, just how they fit together meshed with the Craig Council move. I was one thing that kind of came to mind as you were talking about that the the pitching, especially on the starting pitching front, it seems like they're in a way better position than they were at the beginning of last year. If you think about it, like yes, they brought back Smiley and he had pitched well in 2022. That you kind of felt optimistic about that, and and you kind of felt optimistic about Stroman. Steele, you didn't really know, right? Like Steele was kind of like a like an unknown going into last year, just based off how he ended in 2022, where he was hurt. Kyle Hendricks, you had no idea what you were getting there because of he was coming back from an injury. Jameson Tyon, you thought you would have a, a pretty big signing there and he struggled early on it was a really interesting bullpen beyond that you were like is can this Javier side guy kind of rekindle what he did uh at the end of 2022 Ben Brown was kind of close but then other than that Jordan Wicks was in double a you didn't think he was going to come up Kate Horton was coming off of Tommy John and hadn't pitched in professional baseball like these weren't options and now you're thinking about it well Javier side is coming off of pretty solid 2023 that you're like you, you got to fit, fit him in somehow. Jordan Wicks was good in his debut. Like, you want to get him in. Cade Horton's on the horizon. <coughs> ben Brown. Like, they're in a much better position starting pitching-wise. That, that's why I think it was okay that they, you don't necessarily go out and target uh, ya, or Yamamoto or Blake Snell or Jordan Montgomery because you don't want to take away innings from those young arms. Yeah, I think you look at some other teams in baseball, like the Dodgers and how they're building out their staff. 
like they signed Yamamoto trade for Glass now, and then they also then signed James Paxton, and it's like, I don't know how that fits right. together, you know. Right. But at the same time, you think about it. I think a lot of teams, especially as the pitch clock, I think has some impact on workloads long term. If you think that a team is getting into the playoffs, like you, you don't want three starters throwing like 190 innings in the regular season. Like yeah. it's a very different game than it was say 15, 20 years ago. And I think the depth they've built out to Andy's point is exactly what you want. You know, you don't have the luxury of the Dodgers being able to trade for these pieces and also having a ton of the depth coming up. But Cade and Ben Brown, or Cade Horton and Ben Brown, are two guys that I do think will have an impact at some point this year. I'm not sure on the role, but having those two guys that will come into camp, I expect to be both as starters and guys that I think will both make debuts this in this year. I don't know if they will both be as starters, but I expect like at some point, Cade Horton I think will push AAA hard enough that he's one of your best five pitchers at the major league level. We have really good data on the underlying stats side to understand like what will play at the major league level. There's a point at which I think he will be one of their five best starters. And that's like a good problem to have as to like, well, then who comes out of the rotation? Yeah. And I think that that is like the maturation of how they've constructed the staff is really important. The ability to kind of push into August, September timeline and still have confidence that those guys are not overtaxed getting into October for a postseason run. And that'll be really key, I think, for Aminaga too, who's pitched basically every six days in uh yep. in japan because it's just a different structure than coming over here pitching every five days would be very different for him so yeah i think it, it gives them a lot of options for sure but let's talk about the hitter side and, and you know we teased bellinger a bit and i'm going to start with you on this so the the blue jays just have reportedly signed justin turner to a deal he'll probably fill their dh spot it was about 13 million dollars maybe a little bit more than that as a deal you think that makes them a little less likely for Cody Bellinger, right? So can you maybe explain a little bit why and, and why Cubs fans maybe would be optimistic that Bellinger coming back here from a Justin Turner to Toronto signing? Yeah, so like, yeah, on the surface, you think Justin Turner to the Blue Jays, what is that, how does that impact the Cubs around the division? They're, on a, they're in the same league. The Blue Jays were clearly trying to improve against right-handed pitching, and Justin Turner has had success against right-handed pitching. They needed a DH. Justin Turner serves that. He would probably play some third base and some first base if you want to give Vlad Guerrero a day off, things like that. But then that's taking away at bats, potential at bats for Cody Bellinger. And then the bigger thing, I think, is if you sign Bellinger and he gets somewhere near what he's looking for, what the projections have out there, the Blue Jays are already pushing the second level of the luxury tax, which the Blue Jays probably don't want to go over that marker as is. That kind of takes them out. I think that takes them out of the picture, barring something where the market really doesn't come to fruition and maybe the Blue Jays and Bellinger find something one year, like really – I don't know, like, again, this is still a hypothetical where it still doesn't even really necessarily work out yeah. per se. So I think that kind of takes the Blue Jays away, which makes it even more likely that it's the Cubs because, I mean, as we've seen, the Giants, they've kind of made their, their signing with Jung-Hoo Lee, and th there's not necessarily a clear spot for Bellinger. The Yankees have gotten Trent Grisham and Alex Verdugo, and, oh, by the way, Juan Soto. Like, there's not necessarily a fit there. The Like, is there a mystery team out there? Like, maybe the Angels are lurking? Like, Maybe. maybe if the Red Sox suddenly change course and decide to spend, maybe right. But yeah. even that, the like, their their owners come out and said like they're probably not going to increase the payroll much, which would seemingly take them out of Cody Bellinger. The Orioles don't seem like they're in a position to be just dropping oh, like a ton of catch, and they're in a position offensively with the Cubs, where like the Cubs, excuse me, where they have a lot of young bats that you don't want to take away at bats from some of these guys. I it just seems more and more likely, like as the days go on, go on, that it's like Cody Bellinger will be returning in the Chicago Cubs uniform. Yeah, it's, it's a weird situation because I, I also agree. Like, I, I don't necessarily see any other suitors. The Angels just signed Aaron Hicks. I don't know if that blocks Cody Bellinger, but it's a lefty bat. Or he's a switch hitter, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a switch hitter. Yeah. But primarily, I'm just going to hit from the left-handed side. So, But they still have you know, Trout, Ward, Joe yeah, Dell, Mickey Moniak. they have Mickey some Moniac. pieces there, yeah. too. It's, it's an odd fit. 
and it becomes a situation where I, I just, I don't, I don't know. It feels like a standoff, right? Right. Like, yeah. The, maybe the Cubs have made an offer, like, and it's on the table, and they're like, try to get something better. Like, what is our incentive to raise the offer? Like, yeah. no offense to the Bellinger camp or anything. It's just like, it's the reality. But right, a market is buyers and sellers, and like, it, right. they have to match on a price. And if the sellers are up here, and there's one buyer, and the buyers, like, why would you negotiate against yourself and raise your offer? Like, just right. put the offer and be like. If you get a better one, let us know and we'll counter. But like right now, this is the value we see and based on the in the market. And I think that's the situation the Boris camp's in. It's just like I, I don't know if there's another offer that's better than the Cubs got. And he may not be happy with the Cubs offer, but like again, like it's nothing against either camp. It's just like that's how markets work. Yeah. And that's the situation we're in. Right. And there's there's so many so much other factors too. Like, does a team like the Angels who like their farm system isn't the greatest, do they want to give up a draft pick? Yeah, that's um, a good point. With the yeah. with the qualifying offer. Like does a team like the Blue Jays want to give up a qualifying offer knowing that some of these guys like Vlad Guerrero and Bo Bichette, et cetera, are all nearing free agency that you're going to have to keep restock? Like, all these factors go into it. That sure. It, like, just, in, like, I, it seemed like, again, could a mystery team, like, a team we're not even thinking about come out of nowhere and say, here's your number, and the Bellinger can't say no and the Cubs don't want to match that? Of course, 100%. Like, it's, it's free agency. Like, anything can happen. But I just don't see that happening right now with the teams available. It's 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 seemingly increasingly like every as every day goes by, it's seemingly like increasingly that Cody Bellinger will be back, and then that creates the the raised expectations for the Cubs, where the offenses are suddenly better, the team overall is better, and now you're pushing that 86 maybe win total as opposed to 83, 84. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll just have to save our final determination for what this offseason. Obviously, the offseason isn't over. Yeah, but certainly if this Bellinger stuff goes in, this standoff as you I like that word a lot, Lance. That goes into spring training, which at this rate it seems like yeah. it yeah. might. Like that's going to be the final determination here. Um, I think they need him. I think they need the yeah. impact bat. Agreed. He's the best bat out there, and they need another lefty. So it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. We're going to take a quick break here in the Cubs Weekly Podcast. When we come back, we're going to talk a little prospect stuff with Lance. You've got the jersey, the ball cap, the foam finger. Everyone can see you're a Chicago Cubs fan from a mile away. Ready to take your look to the next level? Upgrade your wallet with an exclusive Cubs debit card, which you can get when you open a Wintrust Cubs checking account. With no monthly fees, free ATMs nationwide, and a $300 bonus when you open your account. Start showing your Cubs pride with every purchase. Sign up at Wintrust.com Cubs. Only $100 required to open. No monthly minimum balance and no monthly maintenance fees. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. All right, welcome back here to the Cubs Weekly Podcast. Tony Andriacki joined by Andy Martinez and Lance Brozdowski. And Lance, we, Andy and I have talked on this podcast before. A lot of Cubs fans out there want Matt Chapman to be signed here. And I think it makes sense for sure on paper, right? Like this is a very good gold glove quality defender, a, a good hitter with some pop. He's a right-handed hitter, so I think that is something to take into equation for a lineup that's pretty right-handed heavy. But one thought that, that we've had, that Andy and I have had in talking about this through is like, with a guy like Matt Shaw, who set the world on fire, already has reached double A, like looks really good out there, is a guy like him who's making the move to third base, does that almost preclude the Cubs from wanting to sign Chapman uh, to a longer deal or whatever and kind of block yet another position? Short, shortstop, second base, blocked for years to come by Dansby and Nico. I don't think there's any way any prospect kind of cracks there unless there's a long-term injury. So I guess what are your thoughts on that, Lance? Like, do you see any connection between Matt Shaw and Matt Chapman and like what the Cubs might do at third base this offseason? I think it's tough. I think it's tough in, in the stance that it's hard to project these guys. Like as much as Jared Banner and other guys in the front office like have been around these guys and drafted these Kantrovich drafted these guys, like it's it's 
they're still kind of unknown until you're up in the major leagues. There's like an old adage that you need like somewhere between like 700 and 1,000 plate appearances in the major league level before we know what kind of hitter you are from like an underlying stat standpoint. And like that's that's a lot of time. You yeah. Know? And yeah. so it's like the range, again, the range of outcomes on a guy like Shaw is despite being really good and accelerating all the way up to double A, partially because I just think his bat was really advanced. He makes a lot of contact. Um, ascending to double A gives you confidence that perhaps we're trending towards the higher end of that range in terms of outcomes. But... I, and that's a really tough decision as to whether like Shaw prevents you from going after Chapman. I, I think it might be more Shaw and company right. prevents you, right? You think about like James Triantos, like not particularly the best glove in the infield from what I understand, um, but a really similar profile to Shaw where it's really good contact. He's a little bit younger. Like his best position is probably like a second base. Like I, I don't necessarily know if he slots over to a third base. Shaw's been taking reps at third. BJ Murray's another guy, really good contact bat. Best fit is probably more first base, but... Again, you could probably force him to third. So you think of like the structure of the system around third base and how that would again block off another position. I, I think it has some impact. You know, I think it maybe has the impact from the standpoint of not wanting to go over, say, a dollar, a certain dollar amount. You know, like yeah. if you give Matt Chapman for under what your models and stuff say is market value for him over the next three, four years, like I think you kind of have to do that. You know, like if no one else is in there and your model says he's worth. $20 million a year and he's willing to take 18 for three to come to you, you know? Like, I, I think you have to do that and then you figure it out. Like, create a good problem, which is depth and not knowing where to play certain players. And then maybe you run into a situation like the Dodgers did with Michael Bush. Like, good systems have good problems where you have 40-man crunches and you're like, I don't know where to put Bush. Like, he's a good hitter. We just can't play him. Send him for a Jackson Ferris. He doesn't have to be on the 40-man for a while. Perhaps that's kind of transaction is something the Cubs eventually get into in the next calendar year or two where they just have too many guys in too few spots and they end up trading for a younger level prospect to feed back the lower end of the farm system. So I I would say yes, it changes the calculus, but I, I don't necessarily know if it like totally blocks them from Chapman. I think it just makes them maybe perhaps less aggressive. And then again, it's, it goes back to the market. It's like, what is the market doing? Like, Is everyone around the same dollar figure? Is there a team that's more aggressive? I, I think the Cubs maybe come in on that somewhere in like the lower end of it. It's just a matter of like what other teams are deciding to do. So I, I, I guess I hedge your question playing Switzerland here. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something along those lines. It, it impacts it just maybe less than perhaps saying that it blocks the It's not a direct impact yeah, by any yeah, means. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to start calling him Tim. About, at this yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, no. But like the other thing too is like with Matt Chapman, does he take a three or four year deal? I probably tend to lean towards no. Like does he really want to hit free agents yet? Age 33, age 34? Probably not. Like, yeah. he's looking for, he's, I would assume he's looking for that seven year deal type of thing, six year deal that most free agents want, right? Where you have that structure and you have that certainty of, like, I'm in this city for probably the rest of my career. I'm, I'm going to be with this team the rest of my career. Like, you don't have to worry about that. So, like, yes, in the perfect, in like, in a vacuum, like, sure, if you can get him for that three year deal, you, you take that. But I don't know if Matt Chapman necessarily agrees to it. And the other thing, too, like, that I think of beyond, like, Matt Shaw or, like, Patrick Wisdom or whatever your third base options are, it's looking at going back to the to the luxury tax and, and the the the, yeah. the the dollars you commit. If you commit to Matt Chapman and like let's say you get him at just to make it a even number like twenty five million AAV, like I don't know if that's going to be the high end or the low end, whatever. Like just using a small number or a num an easy number like that, you're right up against the luxury tax at that point. That's not in including getting Cody Bellinger, which the Cubs have said they want a left handed hitter. That's not including like if you need to trade in season for a starter because someone got hurt or you need to trade for a bullpen arm because your bullpen's not performing to your expectations or you need to trade for another bat, like you're already right, right up against the luxury tax. 
And then that's getting into next year where your luxury tax number is projected right now at like 126, not including ARB numbers or not including uh, contract extensions. You're already pushing, you're, you're starting to get into those ranges where now you're prohibiting yourself from maybe going out free agents in the next offseason, which you look at that class, Juan Soto's available, Corbin Burns is available, yeah. Walker Wheeler might be available. Like all these guys that you might be really interested in. Yes, Matt Chapman would be nice, but then does that prohibit you from adding a front, front of line ace? Does that prevent you from adding a potentially generational talent hitter in Juan Soto? Like all these things, all these factors get into it. So like, yes, in a vacuum, Matt Chapman makes a ton of sense and would help the team immediately. But does that help the Cubs long term? I don't know, and that's the that's the role that Jed Hoyer is playing right now. Yeah, I feel like it's just it, it just kind of goes back to like the blocking prospects. I mean. They have a lot of outfielders already, you know, in the upper minor leagues or I guess just throughout the minor league yep. system. And the corners are blocked for the next like three years, really. And then PCA, Pico Armstrong coming up looks like maybe center field. Obviously, Bellinger can play center or first DH. Like that's part of why Bellinger is so enticing specifically. It's not like the Cubs are out there saying, oh, you know, you know, Harrison Bader or Kevin Kiermaier, guys who are just center fielders that they were necessarily in the market for those guys. So I think it's like, how many positions do you want to block for the next three years? It's it's tough. It's not quite like what like the Braves have signed so much of their core and, and blocked positions, and like, but it's like they know what to expect of those guys. Those guys already fit well, they've already won, that kind of thing. For the, the Cubs to get to that point, I feel like you don't want to you don't want to back yourself into a corner. I feel like, and that's where I feel like Chapman signing. If it was a one year deal, that'd be great. But you know, as we talked about, like I don't know why he would really take a short deal. Right. This is his opportunity to cash in. So I guess yeah, I just feel like it makes the most sense to like see if Shaw can play out. If not, it's B.J. Murray. And then as of right now, third base just seems like a spot where they can save some money, so to speak, like between Magical, Wisdom, or Morel, or Mastroboni, or whatever, you know, yep. they, they, they have options. Even Michael Bush can play over there, too. So that, to me, just seems like um, the path versus Matt Chapman. So I'd be pretty surprised if they signed Chapman. Again, though, like you, what you said, Lance, about the market, like if the market really never materialized, then sure, go out. Like, obviously, Matt Chapman would make the Cubs a better right. player, or better team, I'm sorry, from, from day one. But, like, I think it's the long term that you take into equation, and that's what Jed Hoyer has clearly done since he he took over as a head decision maker. Is he's really put an eye on long term, and all of his actions, I think, for the most part, have proven that too. Not that he's gonna, you know, not worried about now, but he's just not gonna sacrifice the long term for the now. He's never done that. Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree with you. I think that's a great point. Like they always say, like we're trying to care about short term and long term which i think is a beautiful hedge because like it puts you in either camp yeah. you know it's like when that uh, any deal manifests you go oh, this was a short-term deal or oh this was a long-term deal so it's, it's a great hedge by gm from a communication standpoint <laughs> yeah all right so let's just talk a little bit about the system though lance um cubs it, it looks like they're getting a lot of claim just around all of baseball they have seven prospects on the top 100 list in mlb pipeline five on baseball america's top list and then nine on baseball perspectives out of their top 101 so Lance, as you've seen these these national outlets come out with them, what have what has <coughs> been your thoughts on seeing where some of these guys are ranked? I'm sure you're not surprised by any of it, but like I guess I was surprised that it was nine overall on baseball prospectus. Maybe a little surprised now that Michael Bush is here that it was seven on, on MLB pipeline. But like what, what's your overall takeaway there? Yeah, it's really deep. They have a lot of guys I think that are in that say I mean, when you create a top 100 list, from what I understand from talking to Jim, like you probably have almost 200 names or 175-ish, and you're cutting off like half that. So the guys, say, from like 60 to 150 are, are very similar. You know what I mean? Like the difference, say, between 60 and 90 
is probably the same as like one to ten. You know what I mean? Like it definitely starts to lengthen out. There's a lot of guys in the same kind of value tier, so to speak. And the Cubs have a lot of guys in that window. And I think it's the most impressive thing to me is that they've been able to build up also a couple blue chip guys that end up in that top 30-ish window, like PCA Cade. I think Shaw's kind of bumping up on there. Bush is probably right in that window too. But having like front-end blue chip guys like PCA and Cade I think are really important because those guys are the ones we're talking about that you can consider, you know, as being a blocker to a potential free agent, you know. If K comes up later this year and pops as like a frontline guy, I, I I keep confident to a guy like Tanner Bybee if he could produce that in a smaller sample of innings, that's it's fantastic from like a future projection of how many years we could get this guy at uh, to be like a two or three in a rotation is really important. So I like the fact that it's a lot of depth pieces that we're debating. Like Ben Brown, I think just missed that moving pipeline list. I would have him probably above Torontos in terms of long term future value, but. At the end of the day, like Cade and PCA are, are the, the guys that you want to impact this team and be faces of the Cubs. And then, you know, this mix of guys from 75 to 150 that are in and out in that fringe area, those are the guys that some are going to pop from and then some we're probably not even going to hear about in a couple of years. That's just the nature of prospects. But you want more shots at those guys in that window. I think those are the guys that could potentially jump up. If Triantos has another step on the bat and maybe plays a little bit better defensively, he's a guy that I think will jump right up into the 75-50 overall window. Um, Kevin O'Contra, if he figures it out, more consistent contact, has a full season, that's just better plate approach, like he's going to shoot up into the top 40, top 30. So you have to have as many of those guys in that window as you can so that you're not putting all the reliance on one guy kind of converting. So that's kind of how I see it. I think the depth is mixed with the blue chip guys is a really important combination. I was going to say, I think it's really important to think about that because like, this time, two years ago, even a little bit this year, uh, last year, it's like Brendan Davis is a can't miss prospect. Yeah. He's like a certified. He's going to be a key piece for the future. And injuries have derailed his, his career so far. Where it's like, it, no one's totally writing him off yet. But he's not on any of these prospect yeah. lists. And like, as great as it seems right now with some of these guys, like you don't know what can happen. And like you want to have to that point all that variance that you you don't have to rely on. Or well, if PCA isn't the guy. Well, we're in we're in a tough spot. I think, too, the, seeing some of these lists, it makes the Michael Bush trade with the Dodgers even more interesting from my perspective because you know, the, the Cubs acquired him, and then it was Cubs convention right after, and immediately you have Jed Hoyer and Carter Hawkins saying he's probably going to be our opening day first baseman, or at least he's going to get a good shot in first base. Seems like the most natural position. He played it more in college than really in the Dodgers system. But then, you know, that's interesting. He's 26, so he's a little bit older, has a little bit of big league time, but he's still a top prospect in baseball. And it's like you don't often acquire a guy that's a top prospect but also ready to, like, impact you right now. And I know Jackson Ferris and Lance, you've liked him a lot, like second-round pick from a couple years ago, right after Kate Horton, right, the same draft. So it was, like, a good good player going back the other end. But, like, Lance, I guess what did you th- what do you make of this Bush thing overall? That fact that he's a little bit older, but, like, nationally, I mean, he's – He's 54th on MLB Pipeline's top 100 list. He's uh, 43rd on Baseball America's and 71st on Baseball Prospectus. So he's like clearly unanimously one of the top prospects in the game. Looks like he'll be an opening day guy too. It's a byproduct of the results. I think at some point when you have pedigree and you're able to produce at varying levels, sub 20% K rate at AAA last year, above average walk rate, was barreling the ball well, really good. I like looking at like, zone swing versus chase, like that combination, how much you're swinging in the zone relative to how much you're chasing. Um, that bounce was really good for him. Like he's swinging at pitches that he could do damage on. There's a point at which results, I think, conquer all all projection, you know what I mean? And, and Bush is I think, a great example of that because even if, you know, the projection there isn't 
a perennial all-star MVP candidate. It's a guy that has produced so much against high-level pitching that it's almost, it almost would be surprising if he doesn't have some kind of major league career, a multi-year major league career where he has some seasons where, you know, maybe he becomes an all-star but never gets in the MVP voting, but, like, is consistently in that conversation as almost like an underrated kind of player. But I do think, like, at some point you have to look at results in production and, and even if, you know, it, Bush has really good underlying things which I think support the results, but even if you don't have some of that, like, Results matter at the end of the day. Um, projection also matters a ton as well. That's why you have really young guys kind of inside that top 10 that are like, oh, we don't have results above double A, but like what he did in high A was crazy. But Bush is just, there's a point at which you just have to put him on a list because he's produced so much. Uh, you can't leave a guy like that off, I think, from the top 100 creation standpoint. Yeah, it'll be very interesting for sure just to see like how he produces in really his first full big league season now, assuming he makes the opening day roster here. And if he plays at first base and stuff as well right away, given that he doesn't, he only has somewhere around 60 games in the minor right. leagues at the position. So uh, it'll be fascinating to see how that plays out and how some of these prospects impact things here in Chicago. But that'll do it for the Cubs Weekly Podcast. For Lance and Andy, I'm Tony. Thanks as always for tuning in and listening.